Section 49 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 4 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 67 The Literature of the Reign, Second Survey, Part 3. Mr. Buckle's History of Civilization in England created a sensation hardly less than that produced by Mr. Darwin's Origin of Species indeed for a time the interest it created was keener and more widely diffused mr buckle undertook to prove four great principles which he contended were essential to the understanding of history first that the progress of nations depends upon the success with which the laws of phenomena are investigated and the extent to which knowledge of these laws is diffused second that before any such investigation can proceed a spirit of scepticism must arise which at first aiding the investigation is afterwards aided by it third that the results of this investigation tend to increase the influence of intellectual truths and to diminish not absolutely but relatively the influence of moral truths which latter are more stationary than intellectual truths and receive fewer additions fourth that the great enemy of this progressive investigation and subsequently of human civilization is the protective spirit in which governments undertake to watch over men and direct them what to do and in which churches and teachers prescribe for them what they are to believe now it is plain that on the decision of the first point rested the whole issue between mr buckle and his opponents if the progress of civilization depended upon the discovery and right appreciation of phenomena then the basis of the science of history would be settled beyond dispute history would then take its ordered place like any of the physical sciences but it was on this very first point that the struggle had to be made in which as it seems to us mr buckle's endeavour broke down he laboured to establish nothing less than the fact that all the movements of history and indeed of human life through all its processes are regulated by fixed physical laws as certain as those which rule the motions of the waves and the changes of the weather and of which we could arrive at a sound and trustworthy knowledge if we were content to study their phenomena as we do the phenomena of the sea and the skies of course this was not an idea which occurred for the first time to mr buckle it is an idea which has always been more or less clearly in the minds of some men it belongs to that principle which comte laid down when he endeavoured to explain the development of human history it was more than once put into the form of a principle by goethe and had been described more distinctly still by lessing but men like goethe and lessing suggested it rather as a probability than endeavour to define it as an actual law mr buckle set about establishing it as the law of human life by illustration argument and evidence drawn from the actual facts of history and of nature he brought to his task a vast amount of more or less arranged information an ardent spirit full of faith in his own theory and a power of self-will and self-complacency which enabled him to accept as certain and settled every dogma on which he had personally made up his mind 
the history of civilization was never finished the author's early death brought the task to a close it remains a great effort a monument of courage energy and labour perhaps indeed it might not inaptly be described as a ruin mr buckle had attempted a task beyond the compass of one man's capacity and of men's combined knowledge thus far he tried to build a literary tower of babel by means of which man might reach the skies and look down complacently on the mechanical movements of planets races and generations beneath he died at the age of forty lamenting almost with his latest breath that he had to leave his work unfinished and still believing that life mere life was all he needed to make it complete mr kinglake's still unfinished history of the crimean war is full of brilliant description and of keen penetrating thought it shows many gleams of the poetic and it has some of the brightest and bitterest satirical passages in the literature of our time the chapters in which mr kinglake goes out of his way to describe the career the character and the companions of emperor napoleon the third cut like corrosive acid mr kinglake found his mind filled with detestation of louis napoleon and his companions he invented for himself the theory that the crimean war arose only out of louis napoleon's peculiar position and his anxiety to become recognized among the great sovereigns of europe the invention of this theory gave him an excuse for lavishing so much labor of love and hate on chapters which must always remain a masterpiece of remorseless satire they hardly pretend to be always just in their estimates of men but no one rates them according to their justice or their injustice they are read for their style and nothing more perhaps it would not be altogether unjust to say much the same of the history as far as it has gone it is brilliant it is powerful it is full of thrilling passages but it remains after all the historical romance rather than history moreover it is a good deal too long the crimean war came after a generation of peace and to many englishmen it seemed almost as if there never had been such a war before or would be again mr kinglake set about his great book with something like the same estimation of the historical importance and proportions of the war even already the perspective of events is beginning to come fairly out and it seems as if the crimean campaign hardly needed the huge historical monument at which mr kinglake is still at work mr lecky has probably more of the philosophic mind than any of his contemporaries he has treated history on a large scale and in the philosophical spirit he has taken a wide and liberal survey of the progress of thought and of morals as a whole and then has brought the knowledge and observation thus acquired to the practical purpose of illustrating certain passages of history and periods of human development his history of england in the eighteenth century is not more remarkable thus far for the closeness and fullness of its details than for its breadth of view and its calmness of judgment mr lecky is always the historian and never the partisan his works grow on the reader they do not turn upon him all at once a sudden glare like the flash of a revolving light 
but they fill the mind gradually with a sense of their justice and their philosophic thought and the clear calmness of their historical observation dean stanley the pupil and biographer of dr arnold has made some of the most valuable contributions to ecclesiastical history which our time possesses his historical memorials of westminster abbey fascinates the reader by its beauty of style and by the evidences of the loving care with which the author has approached his subject mr john morley has produced monographs of burke of rousseau and of voltaire which are original in their very form and which have made a distinct mark on the literature of their day there are many essayists in history biography and the criticism of art and letters who well deserve to be named in a survey of the literature of our time but whom we are compelled to pass over space would hardly allow of our even classing them in schools as for example the positivists the neo-pagans the aesthetics the agnostics the satirists and all the rest in an age of prodigious literary activity the essayists of various schools have certainly not been the least active and productive the poets however outnumber them by far we have had no great poet in these later days but the number of our singers is prodigious a great meeting of poets could be got up in london alone many really fine poems are the almost unnoticed result of this multitudinous labour sir walter scott once said with good-humoured modesty that he had taught many ladies and gentlemen to write romances as well or nearly as well as he could himself of the poetic voices which literally fill the air around us the majority must be those of mere mocking-birds and yet it is not always easy to distinguish between the original notes and the imitation the highest reach attained among the poets of this later day is assuredly that of mr swinburne his first volume of poems containing the queen mother and rosamond published in eighteen sixty one made no mark whatever but his atalanta in caledon which appeared in eighteen sixty five startled the world the mere boldness of the return to the subjects and the very forms of greek drama would have commanded attention but there was something much more commanding in the genuine originality with which the poet breathed new life into the antique forms mr swinburne's mastery of melodious phrase and verse astonished even the age acquainted with the musical richness and softness of tennyson's lines and mr swinburne had a vibrating strength in his verse such as the poet laureate never tried to have mr swinburne decidedly shot an arrow higher into the air than any of his fellows in these later days but he only shot one arrow to vary the illustration we must say that the jet from his poetic source soared higher than that of any of his rivals but it was only one thin narrow stream and not a full fountain sending its spray and its waters broadly in the sun his poetic ideas are very few even his vocabulary is not liberal words as well as ideas are soon exhausted even the greatest admirer becomes conscious of a sense of monotony as he listens again and again to the same cry of rebellion against established usage the same hysterical appeal to lawlessness in passion and in art poured forth in the same phraseology and with the same alliteration mr morris the author of jason and the earthly paradise is a poet of a milder and purer strain 
nothing can be more beautiful tender and melancholy than some of his sweet pathetic stories mr morris has been compared to chaucer but he is at the best a chaucer without strength and without humour he has such story-teller's power as one might suppose suited to absorb the evening hours of some lady of medieval days she would have loved mr morris's beautiful tales of love and truth and constancy and separation tales which to quote the poet's own words would make her sweet eyes wet at the least sometimes at least when heaven and earth on some fair eve had grown too fair for mirth but the broad strength of chaucer the animal spirits the ringing laughter the occasional fierceness of emotion the pain and the passion are not to be found in mr morris's exquisite and gentle verse mr dante g rossetti has written some sonnets which are probably entitled to rank with the best of their kind at any time and one or two ballads of fierce impassioned style which seem as if they came straight from the heart of the old northern ballad world miss christina rossetti's goblin market is almost perfect in its way miss jean ingelow has written some tender and pathetic poems mr aubrey de vere is a true poet and one of a family of poets mr robert buchanan at one time gave promise of taking a high rank among modern poets assuredly he has not fulfilled all the hopes of his first days but he must always stand well among the singers who only claim to form the second order of the poets of our time the spanish gypsy and other productions in verse by the novelist george eliot are the clever attempts of a woman of genius who is not a poet to write poetry the poetry of these days may boast of having produced a distinct school which has contrived to inoculate not only literature but art architecture ornament dress and social life generally with its influence it is possible that long after the world may have ceased to read even the best writers of the school the school itself will live curiously in memory with its mannerisms its affectations its absurdities imitations and quackeries and at the same time with its genuine beauty and high spiritual aspirations the précieuses it is to be remembered are not always ridiculous they were not ridiculous at all to begin with they were ladies of intellect and true artistic feeling it was only when imitation and insincerity set in when sentiment took the place of emotion when mannerisms tried to pass itself off as originality that the heroines of moliere's immortal comedy could have been lifelike figures even in caricature so it is with the pre-raphaelite school as a certain group of poets and painters came to be fantastically designated pre-raphaelitism was in the beginning a vigorous protest in favour of truth in nature and art of open eyes and faithful observation in artistic critics students and every one else as against conventionalities and prettinesses and unrealities of all kinds mr ruskin was the prophet of the new school mr dante rossetti mr holman hunt mr maddox brown and mr millay were its practical expounders in art a great controversy sprang up and england divided itself into two schools no impartial person can deny that mr ruskin and the pre-raphaelites did great good and that much of their influence and example was decidedly healthy 
but pre-Raphaelitism became a very different thing in later years, when it professed to invade all arts and to establish itself in all the decorative business of life, from the ornamentation of a cathedral to the fringe of a dress. Lately it has become a mere affectation, an artistic whim. It has got mixed up with aestheticism, neo-paganism, and other such fantasies. The typical pre-Raphaelite of the school's later development is, however, a figure not unworthy of description. The typical pre-Raphaelite believed Mr. Dante Rossetti and Mr. Burne-Jones to be the greatest artists of the ancient or modern world. If one spoke to him of contemporary English poetry, he assumed that there was only question of Mr. Rossetti, Mr. Swinburne, or Mr. Morris. In modern French literature, he admired Victor Hugo, Baudelaire, and one or two others newer to song, and of whom the outer world had yet heard little. Among the writers of older France, he was chiefly concerned about François Villon. He was an enthusiastic admirer of the paintings of the late Henri Regnault. Probably he spoke of France as our France. He was angry with the Germans for having vexed our France. He professed faith in the philosophy of Schopenhauer and the music of Wagner, and he was greatly touched by Chopin. He gave himself out as familiar with the Greek poets and was wild in his admiration of Sappho. He made for himself a sort of religion out of wallpaper, old teapots, and fans. He thought to order, and yet above all things piqued himself on his originality. He and his comrades received their opinions as Charlemagne's converts did their Christianity in platoons. He became quite a distinct figure in the literary world of our time, and he positively called into existence a whole school of satirists in fiction, verse, and drawing to make fun of his follies, whimsicalities, and affectations. End of section forty nine.